six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Good morning, everybody. Conley here with the Science Nights in the Morning. We got a full house today, and uh, we are really looking forward to uh, talking a little bit about the stars and the cosmos. And, you know, it, it's very special uh, being out here in the high desert. And, and we, we see the night sky really as a gift, really, and uh, something that we can uh, easily gaze into uh, and, and kind of just live in wonder every single night. Whenever we go out and look at the stars here in the studio, we have Dr. Anurban Bhattacharji all the way from Australia. We also have Dr. Sean Graham and we have uh, Dr. Thomas Schiller with a very special guest here in the studio. Tom, yeah. my new friend, John Philippe Usan or JP, as we'll call him. So we don't uh, butcher his, his name with our Texas accents. Um, JP is an astrophysicist from France. And he's visiting West Texas through a um, residency program, um, Villa Albertine. Mm -hmm. um, and he is interested in our Texas skies and a bunch of other stuff. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, he and the three other residents um, in this program uh, came out to Big Bend with me. And I gave him a, a nice tour of Big Bend National Park. And we got to see some of the beautiful West Texas uh, night skies on that trip and hopefully it made an impression but um we'll see what he has to say what do you think jp hello everybody so yes it's um so this time in texas is a very special visit for me because usually my work is uh, doing research so i spend my time you know in an office with a computer and papers and and these kind of things and a lot of mathematics but i was offered the possibility to to visit texas for a residency so we are four of us and the other i mean uh, our friends are artists and of course they wanted us to to think about this idea of new space and rethinking the you know all these ideas about going back to space because of course this is an idea which is related to uh space research to to science first but there are a lot of issues about economy, about why do should I mean should we go there? Um, the connection between the private and the public, and you know, in Texas, I mean, the, there is a huge history in connection with uh, the the race to the to the stars, and in particular, particularly during the Apollo program, and today with the private company uh, who are in Texas trying, you know, to to build their own uh, space uh, space launch, and this is at the same time something. I mean, I think this is uh, there is this ideas of this new space who has emerged uh, at the end of the seventies. I mean, there was a, a book uh, by uh, Jerry O'Neill in the I think in the 70s called Higher Frontier. Mm -hmm. And this book inspired a lot of young guys like Jeff Bezos, for instance. And these young guys, you know, they try to make it through. And the question is, is this where we want to go all together? Because as you all know, today we have realized that, you know, the planet is kind of short of energy and metals and there are all these issues and problems that we are discussing uh, all together. And is this a time to go back to space, to the moon? What, what are the reasons? Are there scientific reasons, economical reasons? Uh, should we go find a way to, to go 
um, you know, all together to collaborate all the countries, or should we should, should it be a new race between, I would say, the states, uh, China and Russia? What is Europe playing in this game? So all these questions, I mean, we try to 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 address and also to see how we, we can make, make that very real for people. And this is where the art part, you know, is is entering the game because most of these things, when you, you want to reach new frontier, it's coming through dreams. And dreams are the ideas that you put in the head of people and, and you know, they, 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 it, it drives them very, very far away. And sometimes you cannot explain, you know, scientific fact directly. And you have to find, you know, uh, sidewalks to to mm -hmm. explain them and usually i i i give a, a, a an historical example for that which is very dear to my heart is johannes kepler he was one of the f most famous uh, ast astronomer of the 17th century and 16 in 1634 he wanted to explain to the people that you know the earth is rotating on itself and around the sun he knew the maths they were probably on earth five to understand this kind of maths there was no evidences. Uh, the, the evidences came 150 years later. And he got the idea to, to write a fiction. Mm. And in this fiction, he's traveling to the moon with some kind of, uh, you know, his Pisces and stuff like that. It's a bit uh, esoteric. He's, he's flying to the moon and he observes the, moon, he observes the earth from the moon and he described the earth from the moon mm -hmm. and the motion the earth has and of course he thinks that there are some selenites, uh, some people who are like the stone, some, some people who are living on the moon and he meets them and describes there because he knows everything about gravity so he can understand oh the planet is, is uh, uh, smaller and uh, less weight so gravity should be this so he was describing everything as if he had been to the moon and you see, when you know physics and math, you can travel by your mind because mm -hmm. you can put yourself in the environment where you want to go. And then you can write a story. This is a fiction. But once you have a fiction, people will read it. People will discuss about it. They won't understand the mathematical details behind that, but they will start talking about it. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you start talking about things, then it becomes common culture. And eventually, you know, Years later, you will start to, to study it and to make a common knowledge. And I think all these things to play with, with a fiction, to play with art, to, to explain the, the difficult ideas of the world we are living in is something very important because we all know that if we want to understand the astronomy and quantum mechanics and all these things and the paleontology, it takes years, you know, to, to sit in a, in a university. And the knowledge does not have to stay in the university. It has to be brought to the people in, in, in different ways. So this is one of the things we are trying to do. And I was very interested because in, on, you know, on the margin of my, of my research, I do a lot of popular science in France because I think this is some, something very important because we need scientific culture to, be, to, you know, to, to go to everyone. And for the knowledge, because it's beautiful, but also for political reasons, because, mm -hmm. you know, at some stage, if you don't know, understand the nature as we understand it in the 21st century, how are you able to take decision? I mean, political decisions, yeah. you know, we, we have, to, you have to live in your world. And this is why I, I, I've been very interested by, by doing this, uh, this kind of things. Well, we are really happy that you're here. And, and uh, we've had on the show before uh, Pat Dash. Oh. Uh, and um, uh, we uh, actually, you're talking about dreams and fiction and, and manifesting what isn't reality now and manifesting it into reality through science and through knowledge mm -hmm. and education. This kind of hive mind that we have generations and generations and, and generations of that we kind of pull from in order for us to keep making that progress, right? Exactly. Well, what 
Now, uh, Pat Dash mentioned that Buzz and uh, Neil came out here to kind of simulate a lot of things that they might see in the unknown. And what makes the high, the, the Big Bend area uh, sought after? What makes it a destination? Okay, so maybe, Tom, you can also explain that. Because sure. Um, well, JP and, and the rest of the crew went out with, with Pat. Um, was it last Tuesday? Yes. Um, and actually, I we haven't had a chance to really talk about that. So what was that experience like? Pat, Pat Dash, for those of you who haven't heard our episode with her, um, is probably the number one expert on that training mission that the that the Apollo astronauts did out here in West Texas. Um, basically, what they were doing is learning how to do fundamental field geology in a lunar setting. So what a better setting than our desert landscape out here. So they learned how to collect rock samples mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, and Jean-Philippe, you spent a day with her last week. What did you think about that? It was fantastic. Because she has, uh, you know, this inside view of the of the history. You know, you can read history in books, but when you meet someone who has was, you know, lived the events, you you get a flavor. I mean, of the of how intense the story was, and you get, you know, some some kind of of small uh, stories and and the difficulty they were. I mean, for instance, you know, the, this idea that in Nevada they have to, you know, they they were making artificial craters that would look like the place they wanted to land in the moon, you know, mm-hmm. to train. And then you ask your question, okay, so they did that, and it was, you know, in the 60s. So you take an, an area that you think is a desert, but I've learned also, like, spending time in these places, and also last weekend when I was in in White Shaman, that what you think is a desert is not a desert. You can yeah. find a lot of tools, and our guide, she shows us how you can make needles and, and thread out of some plants, mm-hmm. and and how you can find food and so on. And you you know that, uh, I mean, two centuries ago, it was packed with people here and in, in, this, in these places. Mm-hmm. So this idea about how you conceive what you look at is something very important. I think this is something you learn when you do science. I mean, the first thing I, I tell my student about science is to learn to look. And usually you cannot see what you are not expected to see. You know, things remain invisible unless you are prepared to see something. And to me, people who have made great discoveries in the history of science is people who were able to see something that was just in front of the eyes of, of everybody, but it was they were blind. So we learn not to be blind in science. And, and one of the key issues with that is, is this curiosity. You know, this fact that you, you take a stone and with your hand and, and you ask what it is and you take a plant, I mean, like kids. Mm-hmm. And... What I, I mean, I've been a father and now they are grown up, but I, I always like, you know, these ages when they always ask the why question, whatever you say, there is a next why question. And sometimes it's a bit upsetting. And then we send them to school. And of course, they learn a, a lot of things, but sometimes they lose a little bit of their curiosity. Mm-hmm. And I would say it's very important to skip this curiosity in your life because this is what makes you, you know, someone who just takes the knowledge not as something that you know to be better than the others, but the knowledge to act in your world and to ask questions to nature. And to me, when I was a kid, this was my chance. I mean, my parents didn't go to, to school or university, but I, I, I got a chance to have, you know, teachers that, that tried to say, okay, you're asking a lot of questions, just go on asking questions like that. And, mm-hmm. and it makes you happy. And, and for me, it's also very, something very important. And, and I, I think Pat Dash also had this, this feeling about, you know, trying to, to, to bring her knowledge to other people. 
And as you know, you are also teaching. I think to me, it's mm -hmm. one of the most beautiful things that when you teach, you take your knowledge and you give it to other people. Of course, they have to work, but you give, give them your knowledge. And it's magic because you can give something and at the end of the day, you still have as much knowledge as before. So, so you use your knowledge and the more you use it, the more it's spread. And it's like never ending thing. So it's like, it's like one of the resources on earth that you can use and will never disappear. Mm. And I think this is where we will find solution for the future. Mm -hmm. And we need these young man, uh, minds and, you know, these young people will come to university and try to put them on subject that will trigger their interest. They will learn, but it's not enough. What, what I think is important is to give them, you know, dreams and things they really want to do, which matter to them. Because if they do that, they will get a lot of energy. And this is what mm -hmm. we, we need to, de to decuplate. I mean, and... and uh, when you are a teacher, this is something you like. And, and I've seen that Pat Dash is doing that a lot to try to, to, to bring awareness about our planet in the solar system, the moon. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of uh, obvious for a lot of people today about this planet being a sphere and the fact that out, outside is, is something that you cannot go and it's difficult. We have seen a lot of movies, but I remember the picture of the six, I mean, of 69, uh, archive picture when you saw all these people gathering around televisions all around the world watching this thing which is like a moment in history you are doing yeah. something that no one has done before and this was not an american it was a human mm -hmm. and to me this is everyone was there everyone was concerned and the world was different after this this that it was before we knew the moon was there. Scientific explained to us how important the moon is, you know, to stabilize the Earth for for the, for life conditions on the Earth. We knew very little about, you know, timeline on, on the moon. This is why we needed these rocks to understand better the geology. Mm -hmm. And I think the samples they bring they brought back allow us to to calibrate the chronometer of the of the solar system. Mm -hmm. And this is very important for us to understand, I mean, the history of the moon, the history of the Earth, the, the, the two bodies are, you know, in, intertangled. But also it, it, we got this marvelous picture about the blue marble and, and, and what it brought like to people like Carthagon when he's writing the, the pale blue dot. Mm -hmm. And for, for a lot of people, this is the beginning of the ecological, uh, you know, thinking for Europeans, I would say. The fact that we realize we are on the same planet, this, this planet is like a space shuttle. I mean, this yeah. also, also, we, we don't we don't see because we are here. Everything. I mean, we don't move, and then we realize yes, but you are speeding like thirty kilometers per second around around the sun. <laughs> each year, each time you have your birthday, you have one turn around the sun, yeah. and the solar system is going around the galaxy, and it's like about two hundred and fifty billion years to to go once around the uh, around uh, the million years. Sorry, <laughs> million years to go around the 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 center of the galaxy which means the Earth has done probably 18 times the, around the galaxy. I mean, this is quite, quite mm -hmm. a trip. And when the, the dinosaurs you are studying, they were, we were not in this place in the galaxy. No. We were in another place. <laughs> and, you know, when you start to think about like this, the world seems so large. So, I mean, there are so many things you want to grasp that I think it, it, you are full of energy, you know, to go and discover. And there are still a lot of things to discover. And that, that's something we've talked about on a couple of previous episodes, whenever we talk about space exploration is the cultural impact that it has. Like in the 60s, that was the collective obsession of everyone, especially in the U.S., sending the Apollo astronauts up. And um, I'm hoping and I'm wondering if this new push to, to send people back up into space will reinvigorate 
that sort of cultural renaissance that we had and, uh, because I think it did really good things for science in general, inspiring young people to pursue careers in, in science. But I think it also kind of lifted everyone's collective uh, spirits when it came to humanity and what we're capable of. So, um, And I think Sean, Sean probably mentioned this um, on a previous episode. Um, you see kids, college students and high school students wearing NASA shirts. Which is really cool. Yeah. Right. I think you yeah. mentioned that. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. And that's one of the things that um, doesn't often get said. I, I just recently read this um, pretty good book called One Giant Leap. It's a recent uh, book about the Apollo program. And, you know, you often hear the, about the fringe benefits of the space program. And there's this myth out there that it gave us Tang and that it gave us uh, Velcro. And neither of those two things are actually true. They were both invented before Apollo. But what it did give us, which isn't mentioned enough, is rather than push us into the space age, which we thought it was going to do, it pushed us into the digital age. Mm -hmm. That's actually what it did. Mm. Like in 69, who do you think uh, was the primary, you know, consumer of microchips? Oh, wow. It it wasn't IBM. It was NASA. And even though they had those you know, terrible computers that couldn't do anything but what a large calculator could do to run those spaceships. They were the only ones making anything like that. And those startup companies that started producing that stuff at that time, that triggered the digital age. Mm-hmm. It was Apollo. It's amazing. That's a little known fact that like, I was like, of course, and it blew my mind. And that rather than a little fringe benefit that people kind of laugh about, like Tang, yeah. If uh, we wouldn't be talking right now on this computer the way we are, that would have came decades later if it hadn't been for a pilot. And, uh, and another thing people also forget is like the solar cells. That was also related to space-related uh, uh, oh, yeah. uh, spacecrafts yeah. being sent up and you wanted to put like renewable solar cells up there and how that became way more efficient now it is because the research started because we wanted to put uh, solar cells on our satellites. So that started with that Dang. field. So, yeah. Wow, that, that's awesome. Well, we're going to go into a quick commercial. Y'all are making me want some tang right now. <laughs> but uh, yeah. anyway, let's go into a quick commercial break. We'll be uh, right back and uh, we'll be talking more about the cosmos. Hey, everybody. Science Nights in the morning. We're back. We're back with JP, Jean-Philippe, a astrophysicist and cosmologist from France who's visiting West Texas and we're talking to him about the wonder of science so far. Uh, JP, tell us a little bit more about, uh, it's really remarkable what you're doing um, in West Texas, kind of merging science and art, um, looking into ways of communicating science to the future generations, which is kind of what we're trying to do here on our show. But what, what do you do uh, for your day job? What, what's, what's your career in astrophysics like? Uh, in my real life, you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> when you're not on vacation. Okay, so <laughs> officially I work for the, the CNRS. This is a French national agency for research. And I work in an institute which is called Institut d'Astrophysique de Paris, or Paris Institute of Astrophysics. And in this institute, we are a bunch of theoretical physicists. So I was uh, brought up as a general relativist. So my, my specialty is a theory of gravitation, you know, that Einstein wrote in the, in the, in 1955, uh, 15, 1915. 
And uh, so I've been working on black holes quite a lot, and I've been also working a lot on the on the Big Bang model, you know, like on TV, Big Bang Theory. And and past, so now I've been working on on these things for more than twenty five years, and as you know, there are a lot of um, new experiments coming out, in particular to test whether dark energy and dark matter do exist, what are their properties, and there is a satellite. So we got the GWST, which is a little bit away from what what I'm doing. It's more about the first galaxies and and uh, and also exoplanets. Um, but there will be a satellite launch next year, which is called uh, Euclid, and it will do what we call gravitational lensing. So, you know, gravity, so every mass bends light, and you can measure that. It was this, I mean, we, we made the first measurement in, uh, in 2000 from uh, the Canadian France Hawaii telescope in Hawaii. And now it's been measured by a lot of teams, a lot of telescopes. And we understand that because you directly measure the, the wrinkle of space-time, so the geometry of space-time, you, uh, you, you can have a measurement of the matter which is present in the universe, whether it shines or not. Mm -hmm. So you see galaxies, they shine. You see stars, they shine. But you have all this matter called the dark matter, which is probably one of the most dominant part of the matter of the universe who doesn't shine. But it cannot hide itself. It will bend space-time and light, you know, so the shape of background galaxy will be deformed. And this is what we are trying to measure. And this is really the next step of, of cosmology. And on this experiment, there is a, about 1,000 people working on the experiment all over the world, if you count technicians, researchers, uh, computer scientists. So it's a, it's a really big experiment. But we hope it will push us, uh, push us one step further on the understanding of, of dark matter. And, and, this and you're you're involved in the um, the production or the launch of this spacecraft, the Euclid. No, I've been in, involved on the theory part of the of the of the experiment, in particular at the beginning. I mean, it started the PI, so the principal investigator, the guy who is running the experiment, was a, a researcher from our institute. And and around 2000, when he made the first measurement of weak lensing, we 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 had discussion and things that the next step is to go to space because you don't have atmospheric uh, problems and also you can do like a very large scale me measurement and this is what you you need to do and we tried to to, to start building the science case uh, with him and a lot uh, some colleagues in, in in France and then people from all other uh, over other countries joined the, the the project so there are you know it takes about 20 years to to make the scientific case and build a satellite and and launch it so this is also something people do not realize I mean you just don't have an idea and you launch a satellite. It takes 20 years before you actually argue to agencies that this is worth funding these things. There are a lot of experiments which are competing. Once in a while, they select one, and then you have to work with technicians to actually reach the quality of the measurements you need to reach to, to make your science. And then you have to build it, and then you have to launch it, and then there will be a huge of uh, uh, mega and teraoctet of, of data that you will get to analyze, which means that you also have to develop all this, the software you need for that. And at the yeah. you get with scientific scientific uh, analysis just to say for the younger that if you are interested by space and cosmos you don't need to be like the first in math in, in, in your class I mean you can go through through engineering computer science uh, managing I mean there are a lot of people in, in, in this in these teams and they are and they are all interested by better understanding of the nature of nature but you don't need, you know, to be like Einstein or Stephen Hawking or whatever to, 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 to help make a progress because today this is really a thing with, uh, with teams. So I was more on the theory part because I've been working on general relativity for years. Um, and, uh, and, and we, now we, we got some ideas of what kind of test we can make. 
not only to see whether dark matter, we can improve the knowledge about dark matter, but also whether we can test the theory of Einstein on, the, on cosmological scales. It's very well tested on the size of the solar system. Mm. And actually, for people in Texas, the, um, uh, the McDonald Observatory is part of this. You know, the, during the Apollo mission, they put three mirrors on the moon. And then there were two Soviet missions, Lunacod, put all two other mirrors. So there are five mirrors on the moon. You shoot this mirror with a laser beam. So one from McDonald's, they're in one, one from France in the, close to Nice in the south of France, one from Austria, one I think from Australia. And you, 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 you measure the time for the laser beam to go from Earth to the moon and come back from the FAM station. And they've been doing that for 30 years. Wow. And what to test is that whether the Earth and the moon are falling exactly in the same way in the gravitational field of the sun. And you know, this is being tested at the level of 10 to the minus 13. So zero, and you put 13, zero, one, uh, 12, zero, one. So it's a very high precision. And this, if you find a, if you find some um, mistake there, I mean, discrepancy with, with the fact that it has to be compatible with zero, it would mean that general relativity is not a good description of gravitation. So people have been doing that more and more, and we have improved this by, by a, a factor 100 recently with a, a satellite I've been working on, which is called Microscope, with a, a, friend, uh, a European satellite. But you see here, people, they are making some observations that allow us to test general relativity, and it's just next door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, talking about dark matter and dark energy, uh, the observatory out here, they have been doing that with the BOSS survey, with the baryonic yeah. oscillation survey, and I think they, and they are also running the dark energy survey right yes. now, and on that one too, with the Department of Defense or something exactly. like that. I'm not, I think that's still going, right? The dark yes. energy survey is still going. Yes. Yeah, the BOSS is complete. Yes. Yeah, uh, that one is complete. Uh, so, um, uh, I wanted to mention like an anecdote. I don't know, uh, since you, when you said uh, you, you did general relativity, um, I, I had to take a class from Repka, Glenn Repka. Ah. So, yeah, he was one of my professors. So, uh, yeah, he passed away. So, uh, yeah, he was, really, he was really old when, <laughs> when I showed up. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, yeah, so, and also when you're talking about cosmology and dark energy, so, Whenever I, so I'm not a dark energy person or, so I usually, so my work was, is in quasars. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one of the things I always like, you have to tell me now, is this something when I tell my students is wrong or right? So when I say, it's, when I tell my students at the end of the class, it's like, it's very hard for us to know or predict how dark energy at that, at this moment will do. Maybe in the future we can, we can say, these are the things that dark energy can how it will affect, it might slow the universe down, or it might accelerate, or it might just not do anything, or it it will continue just as it is. Am I telling my students wrong, this thing about dark energy? Because I didn't study dark energy as a field of research, right? Because to me, it feels like, even for me, it's like, you're, you're telling me something where the scale is very, very big, even for a time scale, like a billions of years, mm-hmm. right? How would we, we be able to, for me, in my views, how would I can test it on a very small scale kind of thing? Okay. 
So the first thing is to 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 realize that this idea that there could be something like cad energy was 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 understood in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Georges Lemaitre is one the, the father of the Big Bang. He had these ideas that you can have what, we, what he called the cosmological constant. Okay. He actually came to the states. He wanted to see Hubble, you know, to, mm-hmm. because he was very interested to see how well we can we can prove that the universe was expanding because he made the prediction. Uh, the Hubble law that was uh, actually yeah. established in the in the I mean 31 at the Mount Wilson Observatory uh, was renamed as a Hubble Lemaitre because he made the prediction in 27 about what you should see, and and people have going on you know trying to understand to to map the expansion of the universe to to, to deeper and deeper time, and uh, one of the the big issue here was in in the end of the 90s. Uh, they make this supernova experiment, and some people got the Nobel Prize for that. Yeah. And and uh, and um, and then it showed that the expansion is accelerating. Mm-hmm. So this is an observational fact. If you think, I mean, of course, you have all these caveats about super understanding of supernovas, but admit that we understand supernovas and 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 what they have done is is correct, which I think it is. Then you you have a fa- an observation which is the, the universe is accelerating. Then you ask yourself, is it possible? And then if you say, I believe that gravitation is well described by general relativity, mm-hmm. then you need to have a matter which does not exist in laboratory, because all matter we have in laboratory, they have positive pressure. Mm-hmm. And with positive pressure, you can never get uh, accelerated expansion. Yeah. So once once you have said that, there are two possibilities. Either general relativity is a good theory to, to understand the geometry and evolution of the universe, in which case you have a new piece of matter that mm-hmm. you, has to be understood, or this matter does not exist, which means that general relativity has a problem. problem. Mm-hmm. Whatever. This key observation, and we have now a lot of cosmological, astrophysical observations that go to, to the same direction, they tell you that one of the, the you know, important things in our understanding of nature, the theory of gravity, Einstein theory, mm-hmm. or there is a new kind of matter in the universe. So we don't know which is the solution, and this is why we're making this experiment. And when we do like these experiments, we test some models of dark energy. We also try to extend the test of general relativity mm-hmm. to see how well it, it, it describes gravitation. Yeah. But I cannot tell you what will be the answer because this will be the future. And, and I'm sure that once we got this answer, it will it will probably lead to a big revolution in science because if we discover a new kind of matter that we have never seen on Earth, you know, mm-hmm. there is a known unknown, as they say, but there are the unknown unknown. Right. Yeah. And we have to deal with that. This is life. Yeah, that's something I've always kind of uh, it, it that kind of changed my life. That awareness around that the more esoteric dreams that you have and and the 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 more outcomes you want the more esoteric problems that mm-hmm. are going to arise from reaching that you know creating something that's never been built before exactly. or doing something that's never been built before mm-hmm. there's always going to be something new that's coming up and that and that's a beautiful waltz that we have <laughs> with the information that we collect and uh, what we know now so mm-hmm. it's it's awesome so all right we're going to go have a quick commercial break we'll be right back for another segment all right, we're back. We're the Science Knights, and we're talking with Jean-Philippe Husson, a cosmologist, astrophysicist from France. And uh, we've been talking about some sort of um, way out there, technical, physical things. And um, I just wanted to ask, what what got you into to cosmology, to studying the cosmos? Um, I think it was mostly chance, you know. 
As I said before, my parents never studied. I, I was um, born in, a, in the suburbs of Paris, uh, 15 kilometers from Paris, you know, so um, went just to public schools. And actually, I was kind of easy with math. And, and the teacher told my parents, I mean, he has to, to do some studies. Mm -hmm. And I went through. And at some stage, you know, I, I, I went to university and I was studying math and physics. I mean, on the side, I was also studying um, um, anthropology because I was very interested by, by the people from the far north, the Inuits. So I, I was, I didn't know exactly what I would be interested in. I mean, I learned to, what I loved was to learn, mm -hmm. whatever, geography, astronomy, mathematics, biology. I was really, you know, I wanted to learn. And it was in a time where there was no internet. There was very little number of popular science books. And there was no, not all these clubs, you know, of astronomy. So I never did astronomy as a kid. And I discovered that when I was like 20 or so. Mm. And through university, I met some people. And, and then I met my, my PhD advisor. And she was specialist in general relativity. She worked on the binary pulsar. And she was quite famous. And she told me, you know, I've been doing a lot of general relativity. But now I want to go to, to cosmology because this is something which is started, starting. I mean, there were people, especially uh, in, in America, who were quite, you know, in advance compared to, to France in cosmology. I mean, you got Jim Peebles, who got the Nobel Prize very recently. There were a lot of, you know, well-rooted universities studying the cosmos since uh, the, the 2030s. But in France, the community, we had a, co a community of astrophysicists, particle physicists, and theoretical physicists. And in the 90s, they decided to, to make the Planck satellite. So the Planck satellite is a satellite that was launched uh, to, to, to make the measurement of the cosmic microwave background. You get WMAP in the States, and a couple of years later, we, get, we, got, we got the Planck. And because the States was you know, going to this big satellite, they, they, they needed people doing specifically cosmologies. And this, is, was, this was just the time I was doing my PhD, so it was luck. You know, I was just there, I got the math, I got the general relativity, the particle physics, and my PhD advisor told me, okay, we are going to cosmology because this is probably the next field in astrophysics where there will be a lot of discoveries. I defended my PhD in 98, and if, if I think the changes of our understanding in the universe in 25 years, yeah. I mean, we got, uh, you know, this acceleration of the universe, dark energy, we got the, the, the di discovery of gravity waves. The, the, the 2017, right? Yeah. So, yeah. There's a lot of things that have come out we didn't expect to happen. So things have changed a lot. And then even like, which is not cosmology, if you look into people who are doing exoplanets, they love it because Kepler has changed completely mm. everything on their front. Uh, so things uh, keep pushing and we keep on asking questions, right? The question you're exploring now, um, especially involving this trip to West Texas, is how do we, how do we translate that to younger generations how do we inspire younger generations using music visual arts yes that's one of the issues how do we and how do we try to do that in a way that is not controlled just by a few people that we we're trying to go there collectively because there is also one issue about science i mean you know like If you take a stone, you drop it, it falls. I mean, this is a general laws of nature. And this is what, what we would call a universal knowledge. And we have laws and we are supposed they are universal laws. But they are not the only knowledge we have. They are, you know, like the people, the natives, they are their own knowledge of nature. And then we realize that 
you have to take all these knowledges from all people over the world because they give you different insight of the universe. They don't have the same level of explanation of the world. And, and we, you cannot take just science as the only explanation. You have to make them. And if we want to go back to space, then there are a lot of ethical questions that we have to raise. And to me, this is also where the, the key point is. Because we are in a world where we say we need to go for innovation, for new things all the time, new discoveries. The question is, what are the use of this innovation? And there is someone I love that was professor in Princeton with, his, with Freeman Dyson. Maybe you know him. He wrote a lot of popular science books. He died a couple of years ago. And he said, you know, he has a question, is science good or bad? And he said, he has an answer. He had an answer. He said, I would say that science is bad if it's goal is just to make toys for the rich. Hmm. But if it's to help to all of us to live better on this planet, then science is doing good. And the question is, why are we going to back to space? If this is, you know, to, to do mining of asteroids and, and go on polluting around the Earth and so on, is this what we want to do? Right. We know that we have all these debris of all satellites around the Earth. It may be a problem. How do we deal with that? What are the laws that we have on space? I mean, there is no international law of space. Is the first able to go, able to, to take whatever it, he, he, he wants on the moon, which is just, you know, 300,000 <laughs> I mean, 300, kilometers from here? So all these questions, which are ethical questions, are also questions we want to ask. And to me... A way to attack this question is to use fiction, because if you take science fiction, you can take the, the knowledge as we are. You push it a little bit further. And because it's fiction, you, know, you can ask questions that if you ask it, you know, on a TV or whatever, people say, ah, this is horrible. But this is not. And if you look, many movies of science fiction, they are kind of experiments about what is the near future of humanity. Mm -hmm. And I think we are in a time where we have a lot of technology. Some people are launching their own satellite. They have the Starlink satellites. I mean, to me, as an astronomer, this is a disaster. If we go on like that and China is doing the same, maybe we cannot do astronomy from the Earth. So mm -hmm. we have a choice to make. And this choice is where do we want to go collectively? And this is also the question we want to have. And if we have the new generation, they have to know what, I mean, what are the ideas, the dreams, the technology, but also the way to do things. You know, we know that the planet has not uh, infinite resources in terms of uh, uh, metals and energy. What do we use for? What do we choose together? Mm -hmm. And I think once we, we, we reach the question of, of, of space, it's not just the question of one country doing something in, in his lab, its lab, you know, on its on the local scales. This is a global scale. So it tells us, well, this is the skies of everybody. We have to find a way to collaborate. And, and what we see from the world is that it's so difficult for us to discuss about that and to come to, to, come to an agreement. And this is what I would like also, you know, to... To, 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 to reach is how can we find procedures so that before someone is making a decision that, that impact on the whole people on the earth, people have a way to say whether they want it or not. Yeah, and you, you see, it's, a, it's a question even about democracy on, on, on the planet and on, on different countries. You mentioned something a little bit earlier, and, and we'll wrap up with this because um, uh, it, it was very interesting. So, so Sean Graham is a biologist extraordinaire. He, he looks inside like the, at the microscopic level, there's a whole universe inside a microscope and, and there's a whole unknown universe that is among us right now that we're still barely even touching the tip of the iceberg that we're trying to discover. Right. Mm -hmm. We have honor bond that's looking out and you 
looking out into the cosmos, discovering things that have never been discovered. And then we have Dr. Thomas Schiller, who's finding the history inside our own Earth, digging up uh, different dinosaur bones and, and organisms from, you know, an unknown past. Mm -hmm. And as we look out in science, we're also looking in. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned something that I believe every single artist, any kind of artist out there will ask themselves at some point. And I really do believe that science and art, there, there can't be one without the other. They're, they're always dancing in concert with each other. And what you said, the reason why you got into cosmology is through chance. But what artists often ask themselves and what is the definition of their journey mm -hmm. on this earth is the dichotomy between fate and free will. Mm -hmm. What is your definition of that? <laughs> it's a very difficult question. It's a very <laughs> difficult question. Well, that, that's what that's what artists struggle with constantly. I mean, that was I mean, the issue about free will started from the, you know, in the I would say in the 18th century when we, we got this first law by Newton, we saw everything is deterministic. And if we go through the purely reductionist way of thinking, you would say, and that was this idea in the in the seventies, eighties of the theory of everything, that you you will you will take you know things to pieces and you know the fundamental laws and actually everything is written from initial conditions probably at the onset of the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. And then if you say that, you say, so I cannot decide just to, to drop this bottle right now. Everything has been done. And this is where we have understood, I think, in the, in the last uh, decades that this is more complicated than that. There is chance, there is, uh, there is free will, but there is also contingency. Yeah. It seems that we have, like science, I mean, fundamental science tell you the, the space of all the things that can exist. It doesn't tell you why they exist. Because you have to take into account the, the effect of the environment. So, for instance, if you want to have life, you know, you need some kind of molecules and some kind of atoms. It means you cannot be every, anywhere in the universe. In the early universe, it doesn't exist. If you are outside of a galaxy, there is nothing to matter. It doesn't exist. You don't look for life here. And then this is not enough. We don't know all the conditions for life. And then we, if you think like that, we realize there are some kind of thresholds and at some stage, we are reaching some of the scale of complexity, and we don't know why. I mean, we don't know. If you take particle physics, there is no hint of information. There is no hint of life. There is no hint of uh, consciousness. It's not there. No. But in our world, it's there. So if you, the Big Bang model tells you that there is something to explain. It's the origin of atoms, the origin of stars, the origin of life. So when Thomas, you know, give us insight about when life has appeared on Earth... It gives me uh, some kind of uh, challenge because I, I need to, uh, the universe as, a, as an age, you need to have time, you know, to form this, this first molecule and all these things. It gives you constraints. And when you say that, you know, uh, life has appeared and then consciousness has appeared, this is something you really need to, you, you have a, a lot of constraints on that and we don't understand. And all these questions, which are the question of origins, they are questions which are at the boundary of different disciplines. Mm -hmm. You need to, to work a biologist, a paleontologist, and probably a physicist, mm -hmm. and then you have to, you know, someone chemist. working on the brain and a chemist. And this is a, one of the key issues is that these are very difficult questions. You cannot just have, you know, bottom-up constructions. What you usually do is, is top-down. I mean, you, you have complex things. You break it to see how are the pieces made of. 
but you realize that it's not enough. There is something emergent. And the question of emergence is one of the most difficult questions we have in science today. And it is how we relate the different disciplines. How do we relate physics to chemistry, chemistry to biology, biology to ecology and paleontology, and so on and so on. And they are all questions of origins. And this is why they are fascinating questions. And also, it, it, it needs you to go outside of your pure di disciplines, which means you have to take risks. You cannot just be a physicist. You need to discuss with a biologist. Right. And then you are in danger because you are talking of things you don't understand. And I yeah. think for younger people, what I would say is that this is what is beautiful. Take risks. If you just you know work in your discipline, you will probably get very famous results in your disciplines but probably you won't attack the most difficult problems, the most challenging. And most probably you will fail. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it's not yeah. important to fail because you will have, you know, got where other people have not gone. And this is what I think is a, a driver in life just to, to not to become famous. I mean, this is not the key issue about this is, is to go and, and you see in the history of science, people who have remained in their own discipline, in their Mm -hmm. you know backyard and they have done very strong discoveries very important discoveries and dreamers that say no no we have to put this and this and they were you know you know doing things in a very dirty way but they open new way of thought yeah and, and that, that you can do and this is what as teachers i think we also try to do not to say just don't study only maths mm -hmm. and physics but take some biology course take mm -hmm. some psychology psychology course because all these things it will nourish you so that your own discipline you will see through different lenses and you will be stronger and more open and this is what we yeah. want our students to be yeah follow your heart <laughs> yes, follow exactly, your heart exactly. and, and you can always go out into the middle of the desert <laughs> Meet Terlingua Terry. He'll give you something that'll pry open that third eye, and you'll find the Serpent Queen out there, and she'll tell you some stuff you might not. Hey, know I got about some you. for you over here. I got some. There we I got go. Some, I got some cactus stubs for you, man. You'll see God. Why do you have cactus stubs? Uh, it's Terlingua Terry. I went and hunted them up. Found me some cactus stubs. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our show, everybody. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next week for another episode of Science Nights in the Morning. Thanks for listening to this episode of Science Nights in the Morning. Be sure and follow us on Patreon for exclusive gear and uncut episodes. Check out the latest science articles on our Facebook page and subscribe to us on YouTube and your favorite podcast listening app. You can also listen every Saturday at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time at BigBenRadio.com. And if you got a question, we'll join the discussion. Hit the hotline at 432-217-1983 and record your message. We couldn't do this without you, and thank you so much for listening each and every week. That's Science Nights in the Morning with a K, and we'll see you next time.